Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what today is and what we celebrate today. The beginning of everything. The resurrection is the beginning of everything. The beginning of our uh, redemption. beginning of our forgiveness. The beginning of our new life. The beginning of our hope, true peace, true joy, and the hope of, a, of an eternity spent with you. We thank you for all that this gives to us. That when you burst out of the grave that day, that was the beginning of all of who we are. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is always timeless and true. It doesn't matter what culture we're living in, no matter what time period we're living in. No matter how many people disagree with it, or think it's old-fashioned, or think it's irrelevant anymore. That doesn't change anything. That doesn't change the fact that it's your word, and that it is always truth. And it is always what we can base our lives upon. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Humans have always been on a journey to discover the answers to the big questions. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? What is the meaning of life? This is nothing new. Philosophers and sages have attempted to figure out the answers to these questions ever since the creation of humanity. A man named Job, who many scholars believe lived during the time of Abraham's grandson Jacob, or shortly thereafter, from the years 2100 BC to 1900 BC, so a very long time ago, wrestled with the meaning of life and the purpose of suffering. In his wrestling with these big questions, he even thought of God as being inconsistent with himself. In trying to reason his earthly suffering with his faith in God, he questioned God, You formed me with your hands, you made me, yet now you completely destroy me. This man, Job, just couldn't seem to wrap his mind around this apparent inconsistency with the meaning of life. These questions were being asked as early as 4,000 years ago. In Greek philosophy, the poet and philosopher Heraclitus, who lived around 500 BC, famously penned the words, character is destiny. The implied message of this statement is that there are no predetermined forces that control our lives that we as humans have no control over. More specifically, Heraclitus said, day by day, what you choose, what you think, and what you do is who you become. Heraclitus was a proponent of the philosophy that the meaning of life is what we make it. Still seems very familiar to today, doesn't it? Aristotle, who lived in the mid-300s in ancient Greece, seems to affirm a form of this claim by Heraclitus when he penned, neither by nature then nor contrary to nature do the virtues arise in us. Rather, we are adapted by nature to receive them and are made perfect by habit. Specifically, Aristotle posited, we become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, brave by doing brave acts. According to, to one author, what this means is that humanity has a human nature, 
But the purpose for humanity is to just do virtuous acts, which in turn will make humanity virtuous. Any logical response to this by any human who is living about 1,500 years later in 2023 would be that this hasn't worked out too well for humanity, has it? We know humanity as a whole is not any more virtuous today than we were 1,500 years ago. Even after all these years of so-called practice of human understanding and virtue. Fast forward to our modern era. A lot of renowned scientists or atheists who thoroughly believe that there is no reason for humanity, there is no meaning of life, and there is no purpose for humanity. It seems like every day you open up a newspaper, if you get that anymore, or you even know that exists anymore, or news website, or wherever you get your news from, peruse social media, there's someone else claiming to know what the meaning of life is and how you can finally be happy, right? Just six easy payments of such and such, and then you get to find out. Over 6,000 years have passed to the year 2023, and with all of our so-called human advancement, humanity on its own has still not solved this mystery. So, is there an answer? Is there an answer to why humanity exists, to why we personally, as individuals, exist? Is there a meaning to life? What is our purpose as individuals? And if there is an answer, does that give us any hope? The Apostle Paul, who lived in the first century AD, and under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote most of our New Testament, dealt with these very same questions. And he even had a pretty intense debate about the philosophy of life with some well-learned philosophers of his time. Paul's conversation, as recorded in Acts chapter 17, tells us everything we need to know. Saying, are you serious? Well, let's find out. Turn your Bible to, to, to uh, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, specifically starting in verse 16. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Acts chapter 17. It's in the New Testament. Ask a neighbor if you need help finding it. Look up the table of contents. There's no shame in that. Or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Acts chapter 17, specifically starting in verse 16. During Paul's second missionary journey, during the years 49 to 52 AD, Paul planted a church in the ancient Macedonian port city known by the name Thessalonica and then was driven out of that city by a mob. Paul and his companions fled to the neighboring town of Berea, where they were also able to lead several people in Berea to faith in Jesus. When those who instigated the mob in Thessalonica found out Paul was still in the area, just one town over, guess what they did? They just went one town over. Uh, they went over to Berea to stir up another mob targeting Paul. Those new Christians in Berea put Paul on a ship, and that ship eventually took Paul to the great Greek city of Athens. We've all heard that, of that city before. I'm sure Athens was a pretty intimidating place for a Christian philosopher and missionary to start talking to people about Jesus in. 
It had centuries of prominent philosophers seeking to discover the secrets of the universe and setting up schools for their own disciples of their discoveries. In fact, while Paul was preaching in the Athenian marketplace, we read in Acts 17, 18, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. You think you have reason to be intimidated when talking with other people about Jesus. Paul went toe-to-toe with some of the followers of some of the most prominent philosophies of ancient Greece. The group of philosophers were those who followed the teachings of Epicurus and Stoicism. Anyone know anything about Epicurus? I didn't think there would be too many hands. Okay. Probably not, but the essence of his beliefs still prominently dictate the way that many people today see life. See, the tenets of Epicureanism revolved around the central belief that the purpose of humanity was to seek pleasure and happiness. Does that sound familiar today? Kind of YOLO in a nutshell there. One scholar pointed out that that included in this was an emphasis on avoiding the unpleasantness of fearing death by seeking a life of tranquility and freedom from pain. That's what you focused your life on, trying to escape everything, all the painful things in life. If any deities existed outside of the human realm, Epicurus believed that they did not concern themselves with the pain and experiences of humanity, so they needed to fix it themselves. Philosophy aside, again, that sounds like a lot of people today, what they think is the meaning of their personal lives, chasing after what they think will make them happy, trying to avoid thinking about death, and seeking ways to find freedom from their pain. If God exists, he doesn't care about people, and we have to find our own ways of coping with everyday life. Today, this can take one down some pretty dangerous roads, won't it? You may be sitting here, and this may seem very familiar to you. You may be filled with an emptiness that comes from believing your purpose is to chase this kind of life. Have, have it all. Have the American dream. The reality of life is that in this broken world, death and pain are unavoidable. It is an impossibility to avoid death. So why avoid thinking about it as an inevitable reality? Not in a macabre way, but as a reality nonetheless. Similarly, for many of us, pain, whatever form that takes, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, It's unavoidable. Once again, because of this broken world, one may never escape the pain that they experience on a daily basis. That's just the reality of life. We all know that we cannot will ourselves to not feel that pain. So again, is there any hope in connection with death and pain? We'll get to that in a minute. 
The next group of philosophers Paul went toe-to-toe with that we read here, it was the Stoics. This school of philosophy followed the beliefs of a man named Zeno, who often often taught on a painted portico or stoa in the Greek language, and that's where the name Stoic comes from. Stoics believed that there was this cosmic force called purpose that was directing human history. The purpose of humanity was to align themselves with this force. While this belief produced some noble virtues, it also resulted in an overwhelming sense of self-sufficiency and pride. Again, this prevailing belief continues in our culture today. It sounds very familiar today. How many people do you know, and coming in today, you may also believe in this, have this belief that the universe is the force in control of humanity? The universe rewards you for doing good, and the universe rewards you from do, for doing, uh, or uh, punishes you, rather, for doing bad. Karma gives you what you deserve. The shortcoming with this outlook on life is that there's no room for grace and mercy. It's simply a balance sheet where you simply get paid back for what you do in this life. It's still incredibly what? Self-centered. You're doing good things so the universe rewards you. You do nice things for other people simply for the universe to do nice things for you. And beyond that, who's to say you did enough good things to warrant you some kind of good afterlife or not? There will always be this anxiety that you've either done too much bad to warrant you a bad afterlife or you've done enough good to warrant you a good afterlife. Some people think that's how you generally get into heaven when you die. But the same anxiety and concern hangs over that worldview as well. So, again, is there any hope? Well, these philosophers certainly wanted to know the answer to that question. This is what we read next. When he told them about Jesus and the resurrection, they said, what's the babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. And they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Wow, what an opportunity for Paul to lay it all out for them, isn't this? You asked. What are you talking about? Well, I will tell you what I'm talking about. If you've come this morning and you two are open to hearing something that may be new for you, I encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity too. If you didn't get a chance to open your Bibles yet, please do so now. We're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. Before we read these verses, I want to say this. The foundation for the existence of humanity, humanity's purpose, and the meaning of life is exactly what Paul lays out for those who would listen to him back in that, on that day. Acts chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. The God who made the world and all things in it Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. You see that? What is the foundation? The foundation is God. God is the foundation. It has nothing to do with humanity. It has nothing to do with our pursuits of happiness or avoidance of pain or trying to align ourselves with some kind of cosmic point system. It has nothing to do with how we think we understand the world and universe works. It has nothing to do with human endeavor, human discovery, human government, or human convention. It has everything and only to do with a self-sufficient God who doesn't even need humans in order to exist, nor does he rely on anything humanity can do. In fact, as we just read, it is God who in his existence, character, and essence is everything that humanity needs. Why did humanity originally come into existence? That question is therefore better phrased, why did God create humanity to exist? While God does not need humans, as we just read, he created humanity to glorify him. While that seems egotistical of God, it actually gives us the greatest significance we could have as individuals than anything else this world has to offer. It has nothing to do with what we think we want, and it suddenly gives meaning to everything that happens to us in this life, even the very painful things. How did God create us? In Genesis, we read that God created us in his image. That means every life has worth. Every life has meaning. Why? Because God created every human being to be a reflection of his eternal character and therefore be a representative of him in this earth and therefore to glorify him. Not only that, but being made in God's image means being a reflection of his character. Humanity has always been created to need everything that God already is. That's why Paul immediately says in verse 28, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. I don't know how many people know this, but this is actually Paul quoting another one of the Greek philosophers, Epimenides, who is also a priest of Zeus. In his poem, Cretus, Epimenides' character, named Minos, addresses the Greek god Zeus and says, For in you we live and move and have our being. So by Paul directly quoting this well-known fragment of literature from 500 years before that, he's saying this, you already have somewhat of an understanding about this. You already believe in a deity whose existence dictates your own. That being, being exists 
But it's not Zeus. In fact, it's someone even greater than Zeus. Now, why is that important? Because in Greek religion, Zeus was not almighty. Zeus was the king over the other gods in the polytheistic religion and had some kind of control over them. But he did not have the kind of sovereignty over humanity and the world that Paul was declaring the one true God had. So even though Epimenides may have claimed that humanity found its existence stemming from Zeus, big whoop, that only went so far. In Paul quoting this, he's saying, where the weakness of that pagan belief ends, even though you already have a starting understanding there, is fully realized in the truth of who Almighty God is and how he relates to us as humans. When it comes to Almighty God, our whole being is completely reliant upon and derived from God and his character. That's why it feels right to search for some cosmic force that we become a part of. But we've already discussed the glaring shortcomings with just settling for that. However, there is a God who is the definition of love, who is the standard of goodness, and who upholds the universe with his power. In fact, when this God created the very first human, he created him with this foundational reliance for meaning and life and power and who we are completely flowing from God himself. That's included in, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. The man would not become a living person if it weren't for God breathing the breath of life into him. Completely reliant upon God for our even existence. That same concept is furthered by the wisest man in human history in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has planted eternity in the human heart. God has planted eternity in the human heart. God planted the understanding and longing for something eternal in our hearts. A knowledge that there's something more than this. What we can see and experience and feel. Because he knew he would be the only one who could fulfill that longing. We all feel that. We all know that in our innermost being. That there's something more to this life. But a lot of the time, we try to fulfill that longing with other things this world has to offer. But somehow, it just never feels like it's enough. This is the reason for that. God created humanity to be connected to his character and his power. That's the way we were designed. So the concept of human self-sufficiency or not needing God goes completely against what is innate to us. It's purposely trying to go against what was originally created in us from the beginning of time. Our very essence as humans was purposely designed by God to need him in order to have our life and being and joy. But over time, and some deception, with some deception from the enemy of our souls, we thought we could be self-sufficient, and even self-sufficient to the point of wanting to be God ourselves. 
So we broke that connection with our creator by disobeying the one rule he had established in order to chase after a desire to be like God ourselves. Because that connection was broken and the establishment of us as representatives of God's, of God, not God's ourselves, was trampled on, the curse of that sin spread to all of humanity like a sickness infecting all of us and the world that we live in. We can see it in ourselves and we can see it every day with the world around us. That was the consequence set forth by our creator, the ultimate end of which was death. The New Testament tells us that the payment for sin is death. That's all our sin ever earns us, is death. That's, just, that's the just consequence from a just God. If God was not perfectly just, there would be no justice in this world. Throughout the Old Testament, God set up the Israelite sacrificial system to cover sin with blood, but it was never meant to be the ultimate solution. It was always weak, for the result was still connected to how well humans could follow it, and there was still a curse connected to not completely and perfectly obeying the Old Testament law. Humanity was hopeless in our sin. We've already seen what thousands of years of philosophical endeavors, endeavors to understand humanity and the universe has gotten us. There's nothing we could do to reason our way back to God. There's nothing we could do to pay the payment of death, to pay for the curse, for to do so would mean that we were perfect. And what would that be? An impossibility. There's nothing we could do to somehow escape or defeat death, and God knew that. Paul summed it all up to the Athenians by saying, verses 30 through 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, humanity, that all people everywhere should repent, turn away from your sin, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, capital M, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That was the proof. This, of course, is in direct connection with what God has revealed throughout his word as his plan for salvation for humanity. One of God's character traits is that he is holy. That means he's perfect. And there is no sin. There is no shortcoming. There is no failure in him. But what are we? We're riddled with sin. We're riddled with shortcomings and we're riddled with failures. Rather than allow humanity to never be reconciled to him, in his love, God decided to provide a solution. Since the payment for humanity's sin was still death and God is perfectly just, nothing would change that. A human had to pay that payment. But since that payment wouldn't mean anything, if the one paying it was sinful themselves, that human also had to be perfect. And since not one mere human could ever be perfect, that person also had to be God himself. And so in his love, God decided to pay that himself on our behalf. 
See, God exists in three distinct persons, but is also one. We understand that concept as, as the Trinity. We will never fully understand it as humans, which I'm grateful for, for what kind of deity would God be if we could understand him fully in our limited human capacity. So God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth to become a human being. It was the one and only time in human history that the miracle of God becoming a man happened. That man was named Jesus. This God-man walked the same roads we walked, ate the same food we ate, suffered the same starvation, thirst, bone-breaking fatigue, and emotional turmoil we experience. He was, tempted by, he was tempted to sin by Satan himself. When we're tempted to sin, it's probably not Satan. It's either our own flesh or one of his demons. But Jesus was tempted by Satan himself and still stood firm, still did not sin. He endured all things for our sake. He taught about the kingdom of God, his plan of salvation, gave sight to the blind, gave strength to those who couldn't walk, healed those of incurable diseases, and released those thought doomed to be oppressed by demonic forces the rest of their lives from that. You can read about all that, what he did and how he showed God's love for us in the first four books of the New Testament. Then he did the unthinkable and paid that price of death. We had no hope to pay ourselves. Not only did he pay it, but he willingly sacrificed himself to the extreme of human ruthlessness. You see, by the time God walked the earth, the Romans had perfected. They didn't invent it. They perfected the instrument of execution known as crucifixion. Crucifixion was a means of execution whereby one had large nails pounded through their wrists and feet to a rough wood T-shaped cross. One would die on it when they could no longer raise themselves up and down on the cross with their body weight on their impaled wrists and feet, and they slumped down collapsing their lungs and suffocating to death. It was the most humiliating and tortuous form of execution available in human history. And that's why the Romans did it, to make examples of people. And yet Jesus followed through with all of it. Why? Because of his love for us and wanting to reconcile us to God the Father and offer us and eternity to be with him. What we celebrate today is the day three days later when some women went to Jesus' tomb and found that nothing was what they expected it to be. The guards placed there under pain of death themselves to make sure no one did anything with Jesus' body were paralyzed from fear. The stone in front of the tomb was just gone. And an angel declared that Jesus was no longer there for he had risen from the dead. Suddenly, in that moment, there was hope for us as humans. No longer do we have to be held captive by the curse of our sin, held captive by traumatic events, held captive by what other humans have done to us, held captive by depression and addiction and anxiety, or held captive by the fear of death. The power of all of those things was put to death when Jesus took his last breath on the cross. And when Jesus took his first breath following his death, 
Death was defeated for us. The payment was paid for us. The hope and eternal life was won for us. We can be reconciled to the creator of the universe by putting our trust in Jesus as our Savior and paying our sin and our death debt on our behalf and recognizing him as our king by living the rest of our lives, being made into an image. However, now it's not being made into the image of who we were supposed to originally be, but we're made into the image of our fulfillment, who is Jesus reflecting him in every way. With that commitment, all of eternity, the sense of which God planted in our hearts, is opened up to us. With that commitment, we need not fear death, nor fear the second death and banishment to hell. In putting our trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we can have forgiveness, we can have pardon and everlasting life with Jesus. Ultimately, we get all of God himself again. We can have that connection of meaning and purpose restored. The Bible tells us that when we recognize our place as sinners before a perfect God, and that the only way we can have God is to put our trust and faith in that Jesus took our place and paid the price, paid the price we had no hope to pay for our sin, God himself, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, literally comes and makes a home within us. That's both a down payment that God gives to us, sealing us for our eternal home, and a guarantee that God will walk every step of the rest of our lives right alongside of us, right inside of us. The meaning and purpose of humanity was never found in humanity. It's never found in what we try to substitute God with in our hearts and lives. It has always been found in God. And you can finally have that purpose, forgiveness, meaning, and eternal hope that you've been longing for. You've always been longing for it. Here it is, God says. Take it. If you've never talked to God and had this recognition of commitment to Jesus, do it today. We can finally have freedom from the guilt of sin finally have freedom from the guilt of bad choices or traumatic events in our pasts or fear of scary life circumstances or illnesses or feelings of inferiority or inadequacy or the fear of death itself. When Jesus took that first breath three days later, he claimed victory over everything that threatens to shackle us and he offers that same resurrection victory to us on a daily basis through the Holy Spirit. Let us be grateful for what God has always known and how he fixed it so that we can have it, even through the most extreme way known to man. And let us live and breathe and rejoice by that same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That resurrection gives us eternal hope, both for this life and for the next. Romans 8.1 tells us this, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. The meaning and purpose of our lives has nothing to do with us. It's not found in us. We can't discover it. It's not based on humanity in any way. It is only founded on you. It starts with you. It it has always started and it, it has always gone on for all of eternity with you. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today who has been following some other kind of life philosophy or worldview, that is really, when it's boiled down to it, it's really just focused on self and how we can better ourselves and doing good things to make ourselves feel better or earn some kind of good afterlife. I pray that we would see the futility of that and see that we have to throw all of ourselves on you. We have to surrender all of ourselves to you. Nothing has ever changed that you are the one that placed eternity in our hearts. And that the only way we can be restored to you because of our sin is to take Jesus as a savior from that sin, turn from that sin, and make him the king of our, over the rest of our lives. And I pray if there is anybody here today who has never done that, I pray they would do so right now. On this Easter Sunday, this day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the basis of any and all of our hope. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.